Copycat, let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. In the late 1990s, teen TV shows were characterized by things like melodramatic angst, supernatural combat, 30-year-olds cast as teenagers, and sometimes all three. But then, in the year 2000, a show with decidedly different stakes made its way onto the scene. Gilmore Girls, an adorable dramedy about a mother and daughter who are best friends, is decidedly gentle TV. It focuses on the everyday ups and downs of cute boys, overbearing grandparents, the school newspaper, and a whole lot of small-town gossip. For protagonist Rory Gilmore, choices boil down to Dean, Jess or Logan, Harvard or Yale, Al's Pancakes or Luke Steiner. Each episode felt focused on witty, sweet exchanges between characters and building the world around them their eccentric, warm Connecticut home, a fictional town called Stars Hollow. Since being made available internationally on Netflix in 2016, the show has found a new audience, many of whom would have been too young to watch it the first time around. Despite many ways the world has changed in the last 20 years, there's something about the series that still feels comfortingly timeless. Let's go back to 2000 to take a closer look at why. It's the 21st century. The future is now, now, now. The winner of Big Brother is... What date is a computer going to think it is when we get to 2000? Welcome to 2020, a pop culture podcast by Message Heard. I'm Tara Joshi. And I'm Simran Hans. This is the podcast where we revisit the biggest pop culture moments from the year 2000 and re-examine them with 20 years of hindsight. This is the penultimate episode of our first series. Do make sure to go back and catch up on any episodes that you missed. Last week we spoke to music supervisor Kathy Nelson about her incredible career, including her work on the soundtrack to Coyote Ugly. This week we're joined by not one, but two guests for a very special roundtable from everyone's favourite mother-daughter duo, the Gilmore Girls. We'll be talking to the critic, Serena Mohammed, who is one half of art collective The White Cube, and Anna Leskovich, culture editor at The New Statesman. We'll discuss Gilmore Girls' timeless appeal and its second life as a streaming sensation. We'll also look back at how the show was received at the time, as well as the grittier themes of class and privilege tucked beneath its cosy exterior. So, before we're joined by Zarina and Anna, 
Let's put Gilmore Girls in context. The show premiered in the year 2000 on the American TV network, the WB. Since the late 1990s, the network had established itself as the destination for teen TV. It was the home of Felicity, Charmed, Roswell, and perhaps most famously, Dawson's Creek. Released in 1998, Dawson's Creek quickly became the highest rated show on television among teenage girls and the most popular program on the WB. And then the WB's ratings began to dip. In 2000, they lost nearly 20% of their household viewership. They started seeing their target teenage audience as unreliable. Gilmore Girls was a deliberate attempt to bring in more family viewership on the network. If multiple generations watched the show, multiple generations could be advertised to. In an oral history of the show, creator and writer Amy Sherman Palladino said she had pitched the idea with a single line. It's a mother and a daughter, and they're more like friends than mother and daughter. The mother and daughter at the heart of the show are Lorelai, played by Lauren Graham, and Rory, played by Alexis Bledel. After getting pregnant at 17, Lorelai runs away from home, leaving behind her wealthy parents, Emily and Richard. She makes a life for herself in the small town of Stars Hollow, where she eventually becomes manager of an inn. Season one kicks off when Lorelai is forced to renew her relationship with her parents in order to pay for now 16-year-old Rory's private education. The show follows these three generations of Gilmore Girls against a backdrop of surreal small-town happenings, a rotating cast of love interests, and a healthy dose of coffee. Please, Luke. Please, please, please. How many cups have you had this morning? None. Plus? Five, but yours is better. You have a problem. Yes, I do. Junkie. Angel, you've got wings, baby. So today we are joined by Zarina from The White Pube, who wrote this incredible critical essay about, I guess, like the Gen X politics of Gilmore Girls, among other things. And that was after she very impressively watched six seasons in 10 days. So hi, Zarina. How are you? Hello, I'm good. When you put it like that, I sound like a crazed fan. I sound like a fanatic. Yeah, (laughs) I did do that. Be proud of that. I respect that a lot. (laughs) We're also joined by another fanatic, Anna, who is culture editor at the New Statesman, a noted Gilmore Girls stan, and uh, once upon a time, the co-host of the Seriously podcast, which has discussed Gilmore Girls several times during its run. Anna also authored a very difficult pub quiz themed around the show that I went to. I particularly remember a very challenging map round to do with the layout of Stars Hollow. Um, (laughs) Hi, Anna. Welcome to the show. (laughs) That's me. Yeah. Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm obsessed with the the layout of the town. The map was one of my proudest projects. I I just think I would flounder so hard in that kind of quiz but um... I, I did flounder very hard in the quiz I <laughs> thought that I had you know revised I'd watched the show multiple times I was on a team of people who also knew a lot about the show and I think we maybe came like second to last wow yeah I think we pitched it too hard not gonna lie <laughs> we pitched it too hard but um for someone like me who has been watching the show for just such a long time it's it's hard to resist going that deep so let's start with those kind of early experiences of watching the show because I don't know about all of you but for me I watched this show quite a long time after it started its run 
They used to play Gilmore Girls on E4 once in the mornings and once in the afternoons. And it would coincide with my sixth form college kind of schedule. So I'd either watch it in the morning before college at eight o'clock or I'd watch it as soon as I got home. And I happened to chance upon the first episode one day. I guess they had like maybe repeated it once and uh, I caught it from the top of the show and then I just watched them all in succession. But this would have been probably 2008, 2009, something like that. So quite a long time after the show had originally aired. What about you guys? When did you first watch Gilmore Girls? Yeah, well, for me, it was the same. I was watching it on E4. E4 started airing the show in the summer of 2008. And I think I must have just got on board with it then, which, yeah, it's like a whole year after it had finished airing in total in the US. And I was 16. I was kind of a bookish 16 year old who was thinking about university. And then, you know, here's this character who's 16 bookish. I mean, she had very grand plans for her future, but she's thinking about her future. I kind of immediately related to that. And that was that was my way into the show. Definitely. Serena, what about you? I right. So I have like a very delayed relationship with it. So when I first moved out into like halls for university there was like this kind of gap in my life where my sister my mum and like everyone else had been and like flatmates are nice but you don't necessarily want them around when you just got a face mask on and you're like drinking wine and for some reason in those quiet moments I just wanted tv so I started like I started binging series so Gilmore Girls kind of was wedged alongside series like Community and like The Office for some reason, The US Office and like all these American shows which kind of I could just put on in the background and have that be happy background noise. So like the first time I watched it, it wasn't like this thing that I engaged with in any kind of significant or special way. It just happened to me. I didn't really <laughs> catch any of like the specific bits which feels really bad because you've, you've all got like really nice special tender encounters with it and I don't have that. Like I rewatched it just before I wrote the review, but otherwise it was this quite like a background, like mundane white noise in my life. To be honest, I don't know if you feel the same, Anna, but for me, like I also watched it in quite a passive way at the beginning. Eventually, when you start watching a show and you end up watching it in its entirety, obviously you become invested and absorbed in a different way. Otherwise, you would never finish it. You would just turn it off. But I would say that, you know, I just kind of watched it as part of my daily routine for quite a long time. That's how it began. It didn't begin as some kind of like event television. Actually, I, I can tell you something embarrassing because around this time, there was another popular TV show called Heroes. And I had a formative crush on Milo Ventimiglia, who played a character called Peter Petrelli, also appears in Gilmore Girls as Rory's second boyfriend, Jess. And I had a I wouldn't say life-sized, although he is a small man, um, but I had a very <laughs> large poster of him on my bedroom door and I knew that he was in Gilmore Girls. And so uh, I did kind of have an awareness that he was going to come up in the show. And so if I watched it enough, like he would arrive, which he did. And I wasn't disappointed. I but, love um, that. that. That's my like embarrassing like prior knowledge of Gilmore Girls. When did you first start watching it, Tara? So my best friend when I was growing up was kind of like the equivalent of a big sister because like grew up on the Isle of Wight so like sort of automatically the other brown people there like all family so my best friend was a couple years older than me and she was really into Gilmore Girls and I think over a summer instead of like having like a proper babysitter I guess like 
I would just go over to her house and like the two of us would just watch TV, like if her mum was in, that kind of thing. So, and she had like Nickelodeon and those channels and I feel like it was maybe on there. Um, yeah, it was before it went to E4. It it, it, it did a whole run on, on Nickelodeon, but they used to edit it out. They used to like cut anything vaguely naughty. So really, eventually it stopped airing on there because they got complaints for the episodes being so heavily edited that is really interesting given how kind of family friendly the show is and and how it was born of a need for the wb to create family friendly programming yeah that's bizarre but equally it does kind of explain why because i've only recently started re-watching it ahead of this and during the first couple series i'm like i don't remember this happening at all <laughs> like and then that that checks out then but yeah, so I guess as Simran mentioned there, this idea of like it being family friendly. Um, so in the midst of shows like Dawson's Creek, Buffy, like which were seemingly a bit more teenage oriented, they felt that their teenage audience alone was like growing up. So they needed to target a wider group of people. And so Gilmore Girls seemingly hit a lot of different bases. But I mean, as a concept, like if you had never watched it, what do you think would be appealing about it? Like why why did why do you think executives were like, yeah, this is our next show? Because the idea of it fitting in the same vein as like Buffy, for example, is very strange to me. Yeah, in lots of ways it's not really a teen show at all, is it? There's one teen in it who's a main character, but not really about those kind of teen problems. But yeah, I think Amy Sherman Palladino in in interviews and things always says that she was in a pitch meeting. Um, when she first pitched Gilmore Girls and it was you know the second third fourth fifth idea that she raised in a 45 minute long pitch meeting when nothing was sticking and you know almost on the way out the door she says uh mother and daughter they're they're best friends more than they are mother and daughter and they're like yeah that's the one we want that immediate they're a mother and daughter but they're best friends it's it's a good elevator pitch isn't it it's an easy quick way to signal what the themes of this show might be or what where the comedy from it might come from so I think that book probably worked for people. The other thing that I think is really interesting about it is that it's kind of halfway between a sitcom and a drama, which, you know, a lot of teen programs arguably are as well. But Gilmore Girls scripts on the first day of shooting, everyone was kind of horrified by these scripts, which were so big. They were 80 pages long, which is purely because they have so much dialogue in them. And the dialogue is spoken at such great speed so the average script for a kind of 45 minute show like that is going to be more like 40 or 50 pages um so i think that's something that's really special about it as well it's kind of like a sitcom in that it's sometimes a bit low stakes sometimes the characters end up where they were sort of at the beginning of the episode the town doesn't really change but it's also a drama where these relationships develop over time i like how you describe it as low stakes anna and i'm reminded of a, a tweet that you once said where you shared like a I don't know, like 10 second clip of the show and you were like, it, it's of Lorelai and Rory watching TV. I can't remember what they're watching and they're commenting on the show and it's like a very meta way of uh, them kind of explaining to the audience what's so good about their own show and they talk <laughs> about how nothing happens in this TV show that they're watching and they're like, oh, my favorite episode is like when blah, blah happens and nothing happens. And you could say that about Gilmore Girls, like there's so many episodes where the stakes are very low and all that really happens is maybe 
you know, there's been some ducks that have wandered into the middle of the town or, <laughs> you know, the pumpkins have arrived late or th- the stakes are very, very kind of gentle. Um, and so, yeah, I can definitely see how, how that kind of gentleness might appeal to a broader audience. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's also that element of um, family dynamics. They're repetitive, aren't they? People have the same arguments a hundred times. So yeah, there's not like going to be a sudden explosion. No one's going to die. Nothing terrible is going to happen. But these kind of relentless dynamics are just going to keep cropping up and cropping up and cropping up. And that might be boring for some people. But for me, it's kind of funny because it's where a lot of the humor comes from. And it's kind of comforting as well, even when it's sad. Like, Hearing you guys speak about it in this way makes a lot of sense. But in my mind, this show is so specifically sat within like 2020 and like this Gen Z context of like cottagecore yearning that I can't really figure out what it was that could have possibly ever like been attractive to like a 2000s TV executive. Because I think about it, it's like the the 2000s, like 9-11, Bush America. Why do you need yearning? Like, Well, so it's worth saying that it's just before 9-11 that the show started. And so maybe that impacted sort of how the trajectory of the narrative went. But it was that cultural context, you're right, of a kind of just more centrist politics. And I, I guess maybe like to flip the question, we're kind of talking about what appealed to the people giving the show the green light in the year 2000, which I guess like the inverse of that question is, why wouldn't it be made today, right? You know, what about it is so kind of quintessentially of its time that doesn't map on to the exact moment? And I think you've hit on something really important, Zarina, in the sense of, you know, the way we think about the world is so characterized by politics and identity and those things barely touch this show Um, and I'm sure we can kind of get into that conversation a little bit more later on but I I wonder if either of you kind of have thoughts on on the naughtiness of the show because I feel like it's both in a kind of stars hollow snow globe where everything remains the same and remains untouched and is so kind of preserved But at the same time, there is something kind of almost timeless about it. But I I wonder if you both have thoughts on on kind of the naughtiness of the show. I mean, I guess maybe in that like timeless politicsness, politicslessness, (laughs) like I feel like that feels quite quintessentially naughties to me in like a very privileged, like exceptionalist sense. Like I'm self-aware of that as a whole thing. But yeah, you're right. It, like the politics of that era was so middle of the road, so middle ground, so like stable, and everything else happening outside of it on like the peripheries of the West was just kind of yeah mental. But like the inner core, like this was before our full on descent into like fascism and like crazy politics. Like 2016 hadn't happened yet. Like if in my mind we compare that to like new labor's cultural products and like cultural output it feels quite parallel that's quite a naughty thing and i hadn't considered it until literally just now (laughs) but like i I think yeah that chimes for me i think you know even in the third series where rory's starting to think about her college applications and then her personal essay about a person who's inspired her the first person who comes to mind is hillary clinton And like that is so of its time of like sort of trying to like 
nod to a more like liberal type of politics. But obviously, in 2020, if someone was talking about that, you'd be like, are you a cop? It's a very different world. I feel like Rory's politics are like a whole episode (laughs) because this is the 16-year-old girl who claims that her favorite book is The Fountainhead by (laughs) Anne Rand. Oh, yes. Fuck, I forgot about that. Yeah. That really happened. And I, uh, I definitely read The Fountainhead because I had heard of it in Gilmore Girls and was quite surprised by <laughs> uh, the the lack of context that that book is given. When I like learned about, you know, Anne Rand being a figure of the right, I, I was quite shocked. But I mean, you know, every 16-year-old has inconsistent politics, right? Not every 16-year-old. I think maybe 16-year-olds at that yeah. time. I, I, I don't know. I, I was 16 in like 2010. So it makes complete sense that I was a communist, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like financial crash. I, maybe being 16 in like the 2000s was very different. And you entered a world of like stability and promise if you were like middle class. Like the middle classes existed then, kind of, in a way that they don't really now, I guess. Do I mean any of this? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Every time something comes out of my mouth, I'm like, hmm, that's an interesting thought that I've never thought before. But <laughs> Podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you're all really sharp on the politics of that era, actually. And But I was thinking aesthetically about how there is something very naughties about the way it's shot, the fashion to an extent. But interestingly, it's also a, a show out of time aesthetically, I think, as well. Lorelai is kind of this character who's stuck in her adolescence a bit. So there are a lot of cultural references that are very mid-80s when she was a teenager. A lot of the soundtrack is that kind of like late 80s, early 90s sort of music that I think actually is also just what Amy Sherman Balladino is into. Rory's more mature than she should be, almost kind of figure who's very into like classic literature um, and has grown up watching these kind of old movies with her mum. The actual structure of the dialogue being this very fast-paced dialogue is is kind of a nod to these 1930s screwball comedies and so it adds up to a picture of a show that's actually a a little bit anachronistic and some some of the references are you know all those pop culture references are very um anomalous and yeah i think there's a sense in which it doesn't feel that naughties and stars hollow as well as this town out of time out of politics out of any kind of like wider social um context where, as you say, you know, the pumpkins arrive in March, it's in perpetual autumn, it's kind of out of time as a, as a place as well. So, yeah, I think although there are some of these naughties references, often I find it almost a little bit jarring when you get a really contemporary reference in it. Like there's that episode that revolves around a Lord of the Rings themed birthday party. And suddenly I'm like, Lord of the Rings must have come out in like the year before. That's a really good point to touch on the music thing, something that I find very interesting about it, which I guess is something that we've spoken about on this podcast before, is the idea of what was considered like a good taste in music in the early 2000s. And that's something that I think is really striking because, you know, Rory has really good taste. Um, Lane obviously has unmatched taste. But the, the concept of what that is, is very rooted in like guitar music and it's it's really great seeing that and now it's interesting because again if you had a character like that today I don't know that the signposting around what is great music would be quite the same you know I had the cd I couldn't believe it when I was kind of like preparing for the show but I and I'd forgotten but I actually had the Gilmore Girls soundtrack album on cd it has like Big Star, PJ Harvey, Ash 
um yeah why that's amazing that? i feel that's like so that's nerdy. a collector's item now because they only ever did one and it was quite a weird thing to exist but um i'm jealous of you for owning that i i wish i'd been been on that at the time <laughs> <laughs> i did not know that they did a like a soundtrack album that it, I mean, it makes complete sense but like that also feels very like incongruous with the era it is strange though because I feel like a lot of the songs on that are not songs from 2000 2001 they're songs from like yeah 91 or 89 or something it's it's quite funny I think you know we've placed it in the year 2000 I think Anna you're totally right to point out the um, anachronisms of the show and and how that creates a, a sense of timelessness that is quite appealing it makes it very easy to kind of get sucked into that world because that world is so self-contained but I wonder if we can kind of cast our minds back to how the show was received at the time um when the show got revived in 2016 for a final series, there are all these kind of roundup articles that took all the reviews from the original release and kind of compiled them. I wonder what you guys thought of those early reviews. I think scrolling through the L Digest, the thing that like just jumped out to me was I think one of them, one of the <laughs> reviews described it as like <laughs> a multicultural show. Yeah, Variety also referred to the show's carefully calculated diversity. Which is crazy. In my mind, it just goes to show like the way that what's considered diverse has really, really shifted recently. For the better, obvs. But like that it was considered a diverse cast back then is so wild outside of the realm of like my reality right now. Yeah, you watch that first pilot episode and you have Michelle, who is black. And Lane is in the pilot. Yeah, you have Lane as well, who's Korean. That's, you know, two. Two people in a whole town. Like, I wouldn't say that that was a... Extremely multicultural cast. Um, one thing that struck me about the reviews was, um, I think the New York Times were quite rude about Lauren Graham, um, who plays Lorelai. And they spoke about how she basically can only do two emotions, um, which I thought was very, very brutal. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because Alexis Bledel is considered a little bit out of her depth, I think, as an actor now, looking back. I actually really like her performance. I, st I still think there are lots of things to love about it. But they all mention the kind of tweeness of the setting in a derogatory way, but they miss some of the other things that the show's now really well known for, like the speed of the dialogue, the amount of pop culture references. Yeah, I feel like it might be Family Guy or I feel like there's a cartoon that did a parody of Gilmore Girls and it is just these two women talking very quickly so you can barely understand what they're saying. Yeah, and they're gay. That's the punchline. But actually, Dan Sherman Palladino, who co-wrote a lot of Gilmore Girls, his background is in Family Guy, which is also obviously full of pop culture references and stuff. And he only came onto the show when Family Guy was like cancelled for a short period of time. And that's, but, um, yeah, there is kind of that link between Family Guy and Gilmore Girls, which is why it's so bizarre that that parody even exists. That's such good knowledge. Wow. <laughs> that's literally a fun fact. Like... <laughs> Isn't it? Um, the other thing that I think the reviews miss is Melissa McCarthy, who has gone on to have astronomical success compared with everybody else in the cast. She's really the one who has broken the Hollywood mainstream. Um, and Suki is a kind of side character, really. She's the chef at the inn and Lorelai's best friend. And she does kind of get her own storylines throughout the show. But I don't think anybody really picks up on, you know, what a breakout star she's going to be.
I wonder if we can talk about the moments that the show kind of goes into slightly darker territory because we've talked a lot about um, Gilmore Girls as being comfort watching, as being really cozy. Zarina, in your essay, you um, I'm going to quote it to you. You describe it as sweater weather, pumpkin spice season, Yankee candles, autumn and clammy hands, which I think is just so perfect um, and so kind of indicative of the sort of coziness of the show um both in terms of its aesthetic as Anna mentioned earlier like the color palette and the music and sort of how it looks and how you get to watch the seasons change um all kind of playing out in the town square of Stars Hollow but also there are moments where the show really actually is quite gritty in terms of family relationships and very real conflicts of class and money and power it does get quite serious. And I think sometimes those themes are dealt with quite well. Uh, I wonder if if you guys can kind of talk about that a little bit. So in my mind, like the kind of grand arc of it across seasons, um, across series rather, because I'm not American, I think it's when Rory makes the move from like high school into uni. Because you're right, like that kind of, that description of it as like sweater weather clammy hands kind of low-key basic um my description is such a dickhead description because it's like imagine a basic white girl like what are the trappings of that identity like imagine the christian girl autumn meme right like it's it's that like kind of felt fedora like waterfall collar cowl neck sweater (laughs) like that aesthetic The first half of it kind of is at odds with the privilege of it all. Like the the upper class, New England elite elements kind of feel like they're the butt of the joke in the first half. And then it kind of assimilates that into its normal. And like Rory grows this weird entitlement. And I think, I mean, it makes sense. I can't be mad at it because wouldn't that like happen to anyone? Like, isn't that realistic? Isn't that like quite true and honest? And it makes sense that that would kind of be the arc of it but like it does take a dark turn and like that seems to be like for me the backbone of a lot of the motive behind a lot of the darker elements or the the, the parts that kind of go askew yeah yeah no I think for me I definitely have a lot more time for the first half of the show um and I I do wonder if part of that, because you're right, it is realistic, uh, but I think maybe it's to do with Rory living with Lorelai and still living with someone who, for all that, obviously she still benefits from the links to wealth and privilege during that time. She's still kind of pushing against it in a way during that period of her life. But then when she gets to university, obviously that dynamic completely changes. So you're right, maybe that is kind of the jump off point i think like in terms of what are the kind of most enjoyable ambiently cozy seasons Mm. to watch and to enjoy then yeah like maybe there is a kind of turning point in the series where it just doesn't become as fun and and for me i agree with you tara it's the bit when lorelei and rory kind of have a falling out and their relationship really suffers and the tone of the show has a bitterness that wasn't really there before and, and that's quite hard to watch when you're invested in the characters However, as somebody who's like quite interested in long novels and kind of the long family sagas and the arc of TV shows, it's very satisfying to kind of have the foundational core of this show turned on its head um, as the season progresses. You know, it starts off with the 
foundational truth that Laurie and Laurie, Rory and Lorelai are mother and daughter, but they're also best friends. And as the show progresses, they're not really best friends anymore. And all of the drama and the action is staked on that foundational truth. And it slowly unravels throughout the show. And I think that's just brilliant writing. See, mm. I get that. And I feel like it's it's realistic. But I don't know that I come to Gilmore Girls for realism. I do just want like the hug. I want a cozy blanket. I, I want I want the low stakes. I, I want just a nice, warm family friendship. But um, I, I appreciate that, you know, you can't live your life only watching very, like, baby coddled TV shows, I guess. But, like, on Simran's point, there's, like, a very cruel schadenfreude part of myself that, like, feels a deep satisfaction at this kind of golden girl, like Rory Gilmore, like the ingenue, the doyen, like this little starlet with her enormous eyes. And, like, she's so beloved by the entire town and, like, her mum. And, like, she's, in a way, she's, like, more of a protagonist in people's eyes than Lorelai in the context she sat within. And then she just, like, she, she graduates from Yale and just her career tanks in, like, the last season. She's struggling to make it as a writer. She barely scrapes by and like part of me deeply enjoys that because I, do, I don't know why it's such a bad part of myself I'm like yeah do you know what that feels like karma you you can only have so much good luck for so long like I like that setup and then that fall not that it's deserved but like it feels good for me that makes me sound like a horrible person but like I like the kind of friction from that like that feels comfortable or like comforting like not sweater weather but like still Halloween-y <laughs> Yeah, I think you've all spoken so well about that kind of like those themes of like where power and privilege and class kind of come into the show. And I think it's really interesting because although those are big themes in the show, I'm not sure how well handled they are as, as themes. And I think you can have a really great conversation about it, which is maybe the point in, in which case, sure, then they have done a good job of how they've handled it. But I always think about how Lorelai is this character who's like desperate to separate herself from the privileged world of her parents, but really only so much. And actually, she really enjoys the privileges of that world in some ways as well. But she just wants to feel like she's earned it. And the show doesn't really seem to question that that much. One of the episodes that I think goes halfway to doing it is when Lorelai gets $75,000 for her birthday from Richard. And he says he made a property investment in her name when she was born. And now she's got this money and it's nothing to do with him because he legally made it in her name. And so she's happy to accept it because technically it's not a gift. Of course, it's still a gift. In no way is it not a gift. But to Lorelai, she's decided it's fine. She uses it to pay her own parents back for the loan that they made for Rory's school. But she decides that this is fine because it wasn't a gift. And so she's not privileged. You know, she's earned everything. She's, she always said she'd pay her parents back and now she's finally paid them back, you know. And the show doesn't really get into the kind of nitty gritty problems of that at all. And maybe they're just letting the, the viewer kind of do that themselves. Um, but I always think it's interesting how those themes are always there, but they're never fully interrogated. And there's always a few question marks left in my mind. One of the critiques that is often levelled at Gilmore Girls is, as we've already mentioned, it uh, to do with the lack of multiculturalism, the lack of diversity. And when she was called out about this, I think Amy Sherman Palladino said something like, my show, like, I don't write to be messagey, like, I don't do message episodes, um, which was sort of a fundamental 
misunderstanding of that particular critique. But I do wonder if you apply that framework to stuff like how the show handles privilege, um, whether it is a conscious decision to not make it too like preachy or to handhold you through that too much. But maybe I'm just giving her too much benefit of the doubt on that front. I'm not sure. It's not something that I can speak to that that well, but um, I guess it's a show about this very waspy world, this white Anglo-Saxon privileged world. And it's interesting to me that in interrogating that, there isn't a decision made to offer a different sort of experience of the world. You know, Lorelai is the ultimate rebel in the series, the ultimate opposition to that. And obviously she's still white, she's still privileged, she's still comfortable. You know, there's lots of references to the idea that they don't have very much money, but in the materiality of the show, they they live a very comfortable life. You know, they're always just ordering like 80 takeaways a week and they've got lovely, well well decorated interior. Yeah, if it is an interrogation of that kind of waspy lifestyle, I guess it's interesting to me that they haven't chosen to kind of really show you anything else. Uh, I think like the wider politics of the show kind of for me are quite uncomfortable. It's a minefield that I didn't really want to engage with in my like happy background noise watching. I just wanted to kind of like lean in and like forget it and just be like, mm, cozy, sweat, sweat, whatever. But as soon as I sat down to write the review, I was like, cool. So now we're going to talk about the politics of it. And if you like think about it, Lorelai is, yeah, this rebel, but like she comes from like this absolute privilege and like privilege is more than economic privilege. It's like also like, you know, the soft power aspects of class and, like, entitlement and, like, confidence and your ability to, like, fit in socially to these spaces. And she's still got that. Like, she might have kind of left this Connecticut East Coast elite life for this small town in rural America, but she's still kind of got these soft power aspects to that, like, upper class privilege. And the, the framing of the show, the, like, the entire premise is set set up in such a way that it, like positions Lorelai as a woman who pulls herself up from the bootstraps and like makes this life for herself and her kids like single mum she's like done it but she gets handouts from literally every single rich person she knows did you guys ever see the tumblr Gilmore Blacks which is sort of um I think it's like screenshots and like clips of dialogue from all the black characters that have ever appeared on the show there aren't loads. Yeah, so ultimately it focuses on the reboot um, because doing it with the actual series had so little content. Um, but doing it with the reboot, it has like a screen cap of every black character and tells you, you know, their name, if they even have a name, tells you if they have any dialogue and then tells you like what their role is. And I think all of them, the role they are given is endure. Um yeah, it's it is kind of harrowing, I guess, actually just putting it in that framework of like all the black characters in the show. I guess with the exception of Michelle, but you know, how often like how much can you really be like, oh well they have that one character, so it's okay. But you know, with the exception of that, everyone is kind of a prop if they are used at all. I mean, is that the biggest weakness of the show? through a 2020 gaze or is it just a realistic insight into small town New England part of me is kind of like maybe we should let white people have white people things <laughs> like maybe we should let brown people have white people things as well yeah. <laughs> like like 
No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I'm being glib. I think like not to contrast it with the most kind of left field, like they're not connected at all. But like, I don't watch Love Island to get like my hit of diversity. I watch Love Island to get white people nonsense. And part of me is like fine, fundamentally fine with the fact that like Gilmore Girls is kind of like a white people show about like New England white people things. I have no context for what New England is like. I've lived in North London my entire life. Like it kind of, I'm happy with the image of it as like very twee, very quaint. I think the bit that like starts to like irritate me a little bit is when the messages of like Lorelai as um, an aspirational small businesswoman kind of take over those elements of the show. Um, We can't talk about Gilmore Girls without at least very briefly talking about the reboot, which I personally prefer to pretend never happened. I don't know about you guys, but when that aired on Netflix in, I think it was 2016, I hadn't watched Gilmore Girls since I had originally watched it. It had been a long time since I'd kind of binged the show. And so it was very jarring to kind of go back to these characters and see the ways in which the creators had tried to adjust the show to kind of fit a more contemporary moment and the ways in which that didn't fit. Um, So, for example, having a bit more visible diversity or trying to update Rory's um, kind of career trajectory. Uh, You know, she's a freelancer who I think has had an article published in The New Yorker. And um, I actually can't remember loads about what happened in the the reboot because I've blocked it out. Anna's making a little face being like, I remember. It's better not to (laughs) And you're not going to like it. (laughs) You don't want to remember. But yeah, I wonder if you guys can talk a little bit about if you did watch the reboot, what did you make of it? And do you think it was successful in kind of trying to pull Gilmore Girls from its kind of noughties context into uh, a more contemporary moment? Yeah, I think there's always a challenge when rebooting a much loved and very nostalgic show. On the one hand, it's so exciting to like hear the same music and see the same setting. And then the actors appear and they're like visibly 15 years older and it's somehow really painful and sad. And you're like, oh, my mortality. <laughs> like That's the whole point why you're watching a show like Gilmore Girls is to try and forget that kind of stuff and live in this timeless utopia. And then, yeah, the reboot kind of just made me feel sad for those reasons. And the quality, I think, um, unfortunately, had notably dropped and it tried to do so much. Um, the things that I did really like about it, if I was picking one or two things that I think actually made it worth watching, um, I I was very here for Jess's kind of puppy dog eyes and and his return and the the relationship between Jess and Luke sacrilege but it's one of my favorite relationships on the show would watch you know Mariano You'd watch the spin off <laughs> yeah I would watch that um, but yeah I think I, I liked having him um, come back and kind of be successful and caring and a slightly different character to how he left the show he had some better character development I thought than. Lorelai or Rory or a lot of the other characters so I was happy to see him return and I still hope if they make another year in the life Rory and Jess will be together forever but apart from that I found it yeah kind of kind of sad there was so I thought the Emily plotline as well was very moving her kind of coping with her grief after Richards died I found that very moving as well but that was the only one that really made sense to see later down the line because it was such a development and the rest of it I think felt very kind of stuck in time but equally everyone's so much older that it doesn't really work to return to that time yeah I think for me 
the only bit about it that I enjoyed was, and enjoyed is such a strange word for it because it was very sad, but just seeing Emily trying to, I guess, exist without Richard and trying to understand her life now that her husband, who, you know, throughout the series, I think their relationship for all that they're both like awful snobs, I think their relationship and the things they will do for each other, like I think that is quite beautiful still. Um, so to see her trying to just understand what existence is without someone who has always been there, um, I think is quite powerful. But, you know, I will obviously try and shoehorn in Lane because Lane was the character that meant the most to me growing up. Um because, you know, she's the little music nerd with strict parents. And I was just sad seeing the way that her character developed throughout the show. And then it was nice seeing her in the reboot, but I don't really feel like it added anything to her story for me, which felt like a missed opportunity. And she looked so old because she was nearly 40 when she started playing Lane at 16. So <laughs> she looks like... You're lying. That is not true. That actress, yeah, was really not a teenager when she started playing that role. She was like in her 30s. And <laughs> this has shook me. <laughs> Clearly, that's a, all, all that says to me is that when they cast Lane and, and first started shooting the show, they didn't think that she'd become an important character. So that probably didn't matter. But yeah. Yeah, she's 47 now, so... So she was in her late 20s when it started, because they started in 2000, so she was 27. That's not... She wasn't almost 40 when they started, Anna. I thought they were like 60 when they did the reboot. I was like, 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 wow, she was looking so good in the reboot, if that's the case. Skincare routine, like... Listen, um, I, I, I'm a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> I'm a Keiko Ojina three Um, Zarina, I wonder if you have any any thoughts about the Year in a Life series, or if you watched it, if you engaged with it. Do you know what I mean? I, like? I really respect that reboots are hard because, like, if you if you carry on as you did, yeah, that's like too flat. Oh, you're trying to like you know flog a dead horse, like change it up, and then if you change it up completely, it's like this isn't the same. Oh my god, like what are you like? That is such a difficult middle ground to strike. But I despised it with every single fiber of my being. I I mean, the only bit that kind of I, I got a kick out of because obviously I'm cruel and unusual is the fact that like Rory's career is kind of like this stuttering, stalling mess. She's this itinerant lost individual. I got a kick out of that clearly. But the rest of it like the fact that she is this like quite cruel, horrible person to like that random boyfriend that she has and the fact yeah. that she's having an affair with Logan again and he's returned and he's back and then I <gasps> forgot the boyfriend whose whose name she can never remember, which is just so out of character with the Rory that they had built up until that point. And I do just think, you know, we touched on this before, the sort of entitlement that she has as the series progresses but I think by the time you get to the reboot it's just completely out of this world like how out of touch she is with everything you know we talk about Stars Hollow as this really eccentric cozy small town um kind of like a non-creepy version of Twin Peaks in a lot of ways I've always I've always kind of seen it like that um, but some of the the more oddball characters are not always treated with the same kindness, uh, not always afforded the same opportunities. What do we make of the way the show looks on the people who choose to stay in Stars Hollow for the kind of trajectory of their lives rather than the people who choose to leave it? Um, 
online, people felt that Lane Kim's character suffered a great disservice um, in terms of how her plot was mapped out. Even though she did get to go out with Adam Brody. Well, she got to go out with Adam Brody, um, the dream boy. But I think what happened was that his character, Dave Rogalski, is based on Helen Pye's husband. So Helen Pye also works on the show and she's Amy Sherman Palladino's best friend. And Helen also had very strict Korean parents, was only technically allowed to date Korean men. Um, and then she met this guy, Dave Rogalski, who that character that Adam Brody plays is based on. So you have this really cute um, romance that's happening at the beginning of the show. And Lane is such a big dreamer at the beginning of the show. She's such a romantic and she has all these huge aspirations for what she wants to do. Um, and then Adam Brody leaves the show to go and start filming the OC. So the character of Dave is written off as having gone to college in California, which fine. Um, Lane carries on in the band that she is in um, and then starts going out with Zach, who's in the band, who's terrible. He's so awful, um, makes like so little effort with her, makes no effort with her mum, and that which is is important for Lane. Um, and then she decides that, like, fair enough, she comes from a very religious background, so she can't have sex until she's married. Um, she has sex once after they get married, hates it, um, and immediately gets pregnant with twins. And that's the life and times of Lane Kim. <laughs> um, I've been reading about it and different people online have different opinions about it. And some people quite like that there's an Asian character who just has quite a chilled life where, you know, they just stay in their town and like just are in a band and, you know, that her life isn't this weird kind of tiger parent thing. But I just, I wanted more for Lane. I don't know if anyone else has strong opinions on this or if this is all actually just rooted in my crush on Adam Brody. I think it's definitely interesting how the show has such wide horizons for Rory. There's almost no limit on what they can imagine her achieving. And why can't we imagine those kinds of things for Lane? Why does she have to get stuck at home and, and not have this kind of life in a band that she kind of envisioned for herself as a younger character? It seems like there's quite a marked difference in the shutting of the door to Lane quite quickly. Like, yeah, you can be this interesting teenager and then you're going to hit a wall quite quickly, which I think, yeah. I think it's frustrating. When you put it like that all together, I feel a little bit bad for Lane Kim now. That's quite a joyless life of you wait for sex, you have sex, you hate it, you have twins. Like, oh, fucking hell. Like, oh, poor Lane Kim. So the, the people who are seeking justice for Lane, um, one of the only plot points that they wanted addressed in A Year in the Life was just for Lane to have a throwaway line about how much she likes sex now. <laughs> just at least some sort of small acknowledgement that, you know, it wasn't always bad for her. <laughs> You're right. Like there are so many kind of options open for Rory. She's like framed as this like magical character that's just kind of, even in her failure, it's got the world at her fingertips. Looks like we've got ourselves a new recruit for uh, Justice for Lane Kim. <laughs> if you're out on the road, feeling lonely and so cold. Thank you so much and thanks for being so generous with your time and yeah, your thoughts. Thank and you. Your it's good an honour to be included. Thank you.
Okay, Simran, when we were putting together the concept for this episode, you very quickly suggested these two guests as the appropriate people to talk to for a roundtable, and I can completely see why now. Yeah, I mean, Anna is somebody who, as long as I've known her, I've known that she's been obsessed with Gilmore Girls and hearing her encyclopedic knowledge on the show was very impressive. She had no notes. She was just pulling those facts right out of her mind. Um, And I I loved Zarina's essay on Gilmore Girls when I read it earlier this year. You know, she didn't talk about it in the conversation, but in the piece, which I highly recommend you go and read, you'll have a link to it in the show notes. She talks about the experience of watching Gilmore Girls as like putting your life in airplane mode and kind of hunkering down into a place where nothing can really touch you. And it was really interesting to kind of hear both her and Anna talk about the ways in which we can't really do that anymore with television, that even comfort viewing can somehow be tainted by our real life experiences of the world. Mm, You're right. That is really interesting. I think the way that Zarina was talking about how by doing the review even and like thinking about the aspects of the show that politically are kind of bereft, for want of a better word right now. Um, You know, as soon as you start examining it in that way, it makes it a lot more difficult to switch off. And I think a big part of the value of something like Gilmore Girls is that timelessness that Anna was talking about. I don't know about you, but it's really made me want to go back and watch the show and immerse myself in that world again, just to see if I can get back there to my 16-year-old self's naive understanding of the world. I mean, I have been re-watching it in advance of this, but I will just continue watching it. I can't pretend it was only research now. I think I just want to really hunker down into it for this winter. It's quite good, like autumnal winter hibernation watching, I think. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Anna and Zarina for joining us. It was so much fun to talk about Gilmore Girls with them. If you're enjoying the show, why not take a moment to recommend us to a friend who you think will enjoy it too? Leaving a rating and a review in your podcast app is another way to help others discover the show. As always, there are links to everything that we've referenced in today's episode in the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MH2020. Next week is our last episode of the series. So join us as we pick some of the year's pop culture winners and losers. 2020 is a Message Heard production, written and presented by me, Simran Hans, and our very own Lane Kim, Tara Joshi. Produced and edited by Jake Atayevich and Emily Wally. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley.